Open your Bibles to John chapter 14, or John chapter 4 and verse 24. John 4 and verse 24. This will be the 14th sermon in our series on the whole counsel of God as we're going through all of the revealed doctrines in the Word of God. And this will be the second on the subject of the being of God, who God is, what he is like. It will be on the subject this morning, the spirituality of God. The spirituality of God will be what we'll be discussing. And our text is in John chapter 4 and verse 24. And there we read the words of Christ, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We want to take those first four words there, God is a spirit, and establish the foundational truth of the teachings of the scripture on what type of a being is God. Now notice it says that God is a spirit, or that God's very nature is spirit. And they that would worship God must worship him in accordance with his nature. That is, he is in the realm of the spiritual. Now this at once, if we understand this correctly, would draw us out of carnal worships of God. That is, that we do not worship God in certain forms and ceremonies that are external, but we worship God internally in spirit and in truth because that's his nature. He's not an idol. He's not a physical being. Therefore, we do not worship him or communicate with him as we do with each other. But we communicate with him according to his person, and that person is spiritual, because he is a spirit. Well, the question needs to be raised. Pastor, what do you mean by saying God is a spirit? What do you mean by that? And we would answer in this definition. We mean that God is not comprised of a material substance or a physical form. Now, that should be obvious from the nature of the text that God is a spirit. And yet it is surprising how many you run across today that have concepts of God in the physical realm. Now, it is true that the Lord Jesus Christ became physical man incarnate in the flesh. And it is true that he arose from the dead in a physical body and ascended back to the right hand of God. He will return in that physical body. That is, that there is one who is interceding for us at the right hand of God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And in that sense, we have God in the flesh. But in that sense only, because the very essence of God is not confined to a body, a physical image, or a material substance. It is contrary to the nature of a spirit to have a corporeal or a material substance. Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 and verse 39 these words, I quote to you. After his resurrection, he said, Behold my hands and my feet. That it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones 
as ye see me have. Now here Christ defined the nature of a spirit. He was trying to prove to his disciples that he was not a vision, he was not a spirit, but that he was a physical being, he had flesh and bones, and he said in contrast to this, a spirit does not have flesh and bones. So here Christ gives us his own definition as to what God is. God is a spirit. That is a being which is not comprised of flesh and bones, a being which is not made up of a physical image or of a material substance. Well, another question then comes from those who are familiar with your Bibles, and that is this, Pastor, then how are we to understand those scriptures which speak of the eyes, the ears, the hands, and the arms of God, etc.? When you go through your Bible, you find such scriptures as the eyes of God run to and fro. You find such scriptures as the feet of God. You find such scriptures as the arms of God, the ears of God. Now, how then, if God is a spirit, how are these scriptures to be understood? Does God have then physical ears like I have? Because when immediately we think of an ear, we think of the type of ear that we have as human beings. And when we think of eyes, we think of the nature of what our eyes perform, our feet, our arms, and so forth. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1, we have an example of how this is used. Quote, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. If God belongs in the realm of the Spirit, how are we then to understand this? It appears that if the Scripture gives representations of God, that he has these characteristics, then is it not logical then that he it has a physical form and that such as we have or that he's made up of some material substance? And we would answer in this light that these terms that are used describing bodily members of God are only to be understood in an allegorical or a figurative sense. By the right hand of God, when Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, rather than us immediately going to the carnal concept of our mind and think of a hand with five fingers, a hand with, uh, with various characteristics with the vessels going through it, and then maybe trying to view that as a huge hand out there somewhere in the universe. This is taking our carnal conception and then trying to form a physical image of God. But rather than understanding in that light, the understanding, I believe, which is correct in the scripture is showing that the hand or the right hand of God speaks of the mighty power of God. That is, in the figurative sense, that God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. God's power is not limited that it cannot reach down and save that helpless sinner. And that when it speaks of his ear, that is, that God is not one that is not observant of things going on, but that he is all-knowing, he's all-wise, so that the ears and the eyes of God speak of him as his wisdom, his knowledge, his intelligence. 
rather than in some physical form in which that we have ourselves. I'm five foot ten, weigh about 180. But I must not conceive of God as being some huge person out here in a bigger form than I. That is, he's not some 10 million pound physical being. But when we speak of the scriptures which indicate and ascribe to God physical images, those are only used to convey an infinite God down to a finite mind. How would God communicate himself to us? in a more logical way than through words, whereby that when he would say, my hand is not shortened, then we could liken, yes, the hand of God. That's where we accomplish things. And what we do things with is with our hand. With our eyes we see, with our ears we hear. But let me ask you this. After this body goes back to the dust of the ground and before the resurrection, those of you that know your Bibles, do not we still see? Do not we still hear? Do not we still feel? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we're doing that without a physical body. So rather than immediately then jumping to the conclusion when we go to the Bible and we find such terms ascribing bodily members to God, let's not then try to form an image in our mind of God as consisting of some physical substance or of a material form. Now, God is an omnipresent spirit. By that we mean he is everywhere. And that immediately would eliminate some ability for him to be some physical form. You cannot have a physical form everywhere. Psalmist, in chapter 139 of the Psalms, verses 7 through 10, describes this God with these words. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, and whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. You see that? Now here he's saying that even if I go into the depths of the sea, Your hand is guiding me. Now, don't then try to visualize some huge, long hand dropping down from beyond the stars and guiding this individual and his right hand. Now, you that are right-handed, you appreciate this. My right, my power, what little I have is not in my right hand. I'm left-handed. But the right hand speaks of that where the power is. And the individual here in the uh, the Psalms is merely saying that Whither can I go to get away from the presence of God, from his spirit? If I go up into the heaven, it's there. If I even go down into the realm of the grave, it's there. If I take the wings of the morning like the sun as it comes up, and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, still God is there. So God is an omnipresent spirit. God is invisible. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see. Whom no man can see nor can see. This is describing the nature of God. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it is said, who is the image of the invisible God. Moses was said to have endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
You say, isn't that a contradiction? How can you see that which is invisible? You see it in the realm of the spiritual through your understanding that God is not a visible God, but that he dwells in the invisible realm and that through faith in what he has revealed, we understand him to be of that nature. So Moses saw the invisible God, but yet it is said that no man can see him nor has seen him. John chapter 1, verse 18. Now listen carefully to this. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Well, you say, Pastor, what's the significance of that? It's very, very significant. Do we really believe that? That no man has ever seen God at any time. Is that true or isn't it true? Well, you say, preacher, I don't know. It's seen, I, I believe the Bible, and, and that's what it says, but I also believe the Bible, and over here it speaks of scriptures which speak about individuals having seen God. Now, I don't understand that. I don't understand how this scripture can say this person saw God, and yet this, per- this scripture here says no man has ever seen God at any time. How is that understood? Don't these scriptures contradict each other, which imply that individuals have seen God? Well, let's look at these scriptures in the Bible, and if you have your Bible handy, we'll go through about five or six of them. First, turn to Genesis chapter 32 and verse 20. Genesis chapter 32 and verse 20. Here we have Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Genesis chapter 32, what did I say, and verse verse 30, maybe it is. Yes, Genesis 32, 30. Now, as Jacob is wrestling with this angel or this individual, uh, we read in verse 24, Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. Now down in verse 30, and Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. You say, Pastor, now there it is. If you believe the Bible, here it is. Jacob says he saw God face to face. And yet here's a passage over here which says no man has seen God. Now see there, the Bible's filled with contradictions. All right, let's look in Exodus chapter 24. The next book. Exodus chapter 24 and verses 9 through 11. Here we have Moses on Mount Sinai. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, as it were, the body of heaven in its clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand, also they saw God and did eat and drink. Now here's another text which says these individuals saw God. Look in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. Exodus chapter 33 and beginning in verse 18. Moses asked for a vision of the Lord, that he might see his glory. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. 
And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Preacher, I don't know how you can say, then, that there that God doesn't have a physical image, when here God says, I'm going to tell Moses... Now, here I'm not going to show you my face, but I'm going to show you my back. That clearly tells me that God has some type of a physical image. I'm merely talking in language in case you missed a little bit now. That seems to indicate that God is not a spirit, that he has some type of an image, a physical image, which man can see. Now, we're only looking at these scriptures, and we've given you three. Let's go to the book of Judges. What are these individuals viewing? How can it be said that God has never been seen, and yet what are these individuals seeing? Judges chapter 6 and verse 22. Judges chapter 6 and verse 22. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord... Now, this is a very important text to interpret all of this. Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Now then look over in Judges chapter 13. Now, Gideon saw an angel here. It was described as the angel of the Lord. In Judges chapter 13 and verse 21, we have another account of a different individual. But the angel of the Lord did no more appear to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. Now look at his reaction. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. Now, do you see that? They saw an angel of the Lord, but they described it as having seen God. It is not that they saw the full glory of the essence of God's person, but they saw a portion of that glory revealed in the form of an angel. They saw the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said, I have seen God. Now, you take all of these texts and then go to John chapter 14 and verses 8 and 9. John chapter 14 and verses 8 and 9. How are these to be harmonized? How do we understand that if God be a spirit, how do these individuals see then him? In John chapter 14 and verse 8, we read these words. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. 
Now, here's a very, very important text upon the bearing of all these that we've read. Here Jesus has said, I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. And Philip said, before you go, show us the Father. Show us God. I want you to look at the answer in these words. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been with you such a long time, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou, show us the Father? Philip, I've been with you. You've seen my person. You've seen the words and the teachings that I've taught. You've seen the works that I've done in verses 10 through 12. And you know that I'm not just a human being. And yet you still ask to be seen, have God the Father shown to you. Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, what's he in essence in saying? That the way an individual in a human body is able to see God is through an understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he came to do. And in the Old Testament, you have what is called theophanies. Many times God came down and appeared in the form of individuals. And the most dramatic event of this is when God came down and took upon the form of a baby in Bethlehem's manger and revealed himself to man. And man did not see him there. And it is only as the work of the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus Christ to the heart of a sinner that he will ever see the true vision of God, of who God is in his person and work in the person of Christ. And it is not that you're to look at Christ as the unbelieving world does and says, well, all I see are hands. I see, I know he was a human being. I know he had a body. But that's not how we see God. It is in who Jesus Christ was and what he came to do to reconcile us unto the Father, his person and his work that reveals God unto us. So how does one then really see God, and how do all of these individuals in the Old Testament, when they say that they have seen God, it is not that they have seen some physical image, but they've had a glimpse of the revelation of the glory of God in the person of himself. Now let's look in, um, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Deuteronomy, chapter 4. This, if it is not yet sunk home yet, this will really put... Uh, confusion to you if you do not yet understand how that an individual sees God, and yet here all these scriptures speak of these individuals seeing something in which they describe as God. Well, I believe somebody tore Deuteronomy out of my Bible. There it is, it's after numbers. <laughs> I'm going to have to learn how to count. It's the fifth book rather than the fourth. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now you say, well, Pastor Moses saw something. He saw the back part of God. And therefore that means that God has a behind, just like I have a behind. Is that right? 
You mean God has a physical image similar to what you and I have? Well, now that would be all right. You might go ahead and teach that if you didn't have this passage to deal with here. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and beginning in verse 15, he gives now to this same person, Moses, who had this vision of a portion of the glory of God, these words, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spoke unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. <laughs> How are you going to reconcile that? He said, Moses, you didn't see anything that day in which that you can liken unto me to where you can make a physical image out of it. Now look what, look why he, he's given this. Why did God not reveal himself in a physical image to Moses and to the leaders of Israel? Listen, here's why. Lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. He said, Moses, you cannot make a physical image of me, either male or female, for you didn't see any. So God cannot be likened unto the physical form of man. But he doesn't stop there. The likeness of any beast that is on the earth. Moses, you can't look out and see this particular beast, maybe of the lion or the tiger, and identify that with power and then carve you out an image and say, that's what God looks like. You can't do that. You can't make a man, God, in the appearance of a man, and you can't make a similitude out of him in the form of a beast. But he doesn't stop there. The likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air. You can't look up into the sky and see the majesty of the eagle and see how it rules over and glides over the earth and say, say that's what God looks like. No, you can't do that. The likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground. You can't take a serpent of some type, a snake, and say, this is what God looks like. This is his image. This is his substance. Or the likeness of any fish that is in the waters. Some of you, you love to fish. And uh, maybe that's your God. <laughs> maybe if you spend more time in doing that than you do in worshiping God, that is your God. Now, I love the fish. I love the hunt. I love to do all of these things. But some of you here today, you might make God in the image of a fish and say, well, now here, I love the fish for bass. This is my God. This is what I think God looks like. I like that the most. And so God will have him look like this. Lest thou lift up thy eyes into heaven, and when thou seest the sun, moon, and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. Now notice, what's the purpose of this? He said, Moses, when I reveal myself unto you, you didn't see any similitude of an image whereby you could carve out something in your mind and say, this is what God looks like. Now, do you see that? Whether it be male or female, whether it be a beast, whether it be a fowl of the air, whether it be a serpent of the ground, whether it be a fish in the sea, none of these things can you, in your mind, form an image of God, lest you corrupt yourself and begin worshiping that image like all of the other heathens do around about you. 
But God is a spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, not in a physical form. Well, now, what is all this, the value of it to us here in Osceola, Missouri today? How can this be applied to us? One thing is in this light, it's a great guard against idolatry. You say, well, Pastor, I'm not guilty of idolatry. I, you can come into my home and search it all over, and you won't find any images there. I would hope not. But yet today you find that the teaching, beloved, that emphasizes a physical likeness of God, the individuals that teach this, it isn't but about 10 or 15 years until you have their students worshiping God in the form of idolatry, a physical idol. If we are going to preserve the true spiritual worship of God, then we must cut out everything which would identify God with something in the creation, because he is the creator of heaven and earth. He's not a man such as you and I. He's not a beast. He's not a fowl. He's not a fish. Our God is the great, omnipotent, invisible, eternal spirit which spoke and the heavens and the world came into being. And how are you going to form that? How are you going to draw an image of that? How are you going to make a picture of that? And so it will help preserve the purity of the worship of God. And then another thing it will benefit us today, and that is it will cause us to see that God is to be worshipped as a spirit, and the more spiritual the worship is, the more honoring it is to God. See that? The more spiritual our worship becomes, the more it honors God, because God is a spirit. I won't have to mention the particular group, but you probably know who I'm talking about. But ever so often there's a great gathering of people that go to a certain location in the world one time a year, and there in that huge cathedral, all of these thousands and thousands of people come out with their gifts. That is, they have some packages and various things, and then the certain individual comes out in his glorious robes of pomp and splendor, and these people then give all of their gifts and homages unto this man. Now, all of that is external. Here is gold, silver, frankincense, all of it in the external realm is heaped upon the honor of this man. But beloved, when we come to the realm of worshiping God, we do not have to bring the externals. Do you know who God and what God looks upon? God says, Brother Powell, I'll dwell with him of an humble and a contrite heart. He said, Sacrifice and offering I would have none, but of him that has an humble and a contrite and a broken heart, that's the person I'll commune with. So that what we can learn from this is that as we go through whatever form of external worship we have, our song service, our preaching, all of this you're hearing with the external. But as we sing the words of our songs, 
If it doesn't come from a broken and a contrite heart, beloved, we're not worshiping God in an honorable way. An unregenerate person can take the words of the song and sing, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But only the broken heart that has been humbled by the grace of God can sing the words out of the depths of the heart to where that God is truly worshipped and honored in spirit and in truth. God is not a physical God that physical actions can honor. There must come from that humble and contrite heart a spirit of adoration that communes in harmony with the God of this heaven and earth, because God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. May God help you and I, as individuals, to learn that it is not our external actions, but that it is the depths of our heart, the sincerity that goes on here, Oh, it's so easy to put on a show. Look at the Pharisees, how they put on the show. They went before the temple to be seen of men, and men would look and say, religious, very good, very good. But Jesus said, you're full of dead men's bones inside, because it's really in here is where it counts, because there is the ability to commune with our God who is in heaven and earth, and he's a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God help us to do that. And now, finally, quickly in closing, to those of you that are here without Christ, when we preach Christ unto you and we ask Him to you to accept him as your personal Savior, we're not asking you to somehow try to think in your mind of a physical human being and you inviting him into your home. And that's what it means to accept Christ. We're exhorting you as a lost sinner to reflect upon the person of Christ, who he was, the incarnate Son of God, who came and through his work died on behalf of sinners, and now ascended to the right hand of God, there to grant life unto repentant sinners. And that when you receive him into your life, You're receiving who he is and what he did. That's what we mean by embracing the gospel and having Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Not that I would go and I would put my arms around Mr. Powell here and have him as my personal friend. He can be my personal friend sitting right there because we commune in spirit with each other, you see. And what we're talking about in embracing Christ is not the movement of the feet, it's not the movement of the head saying yes or no, it's the movement of the heart. Will you have Christ to be your Lord and Savior and receive him into your life? This is what we mean by receiving Christ in the spiritual sense. And oh, how this does away then with the conception that in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved, you've got to go through this tank right here. Or you've got to go through the ordinance of communion. Or somehow you've got to make it up here and let me put my hands on your head and pronounce that your sins be forgiven. Oh, if you're, if you're, you have no legs, how are you going to make it here? Right where you're seated. In the depths of your being, you can cry out, O Lord, while on others thou art uh, calling, do not pass me by. 
Because coming to Jesus Christ is not through an ordinance. It's not through an externalism of any nature. It's an internal coming of the heart that lays hold on the promises of Christ. Because God is a spirit, and they that worship him in the gospel embrace him in spirit and in truth. Let's stand together, Brother Powell. 236.